Welcome to Altamara. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And together we're going to dive into India and how this country, home to almost 1.4 billion people, is trying to reverse a sharp economic slowdown. So India has suddenly become a tough landscape for recently re-elected Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Tensions with Pakistan, a growth slowdown, and a more complicated political climate than he probably expected. Today, we'll also touch on India-U.S. strategic and trade relations. And our guest today is perfect for this episode, Nisha Biswal, the head of the U.S.-India Business Coalition. I don't know that he expected the tough political climate, but he certainly created it. And so, but I know that the focus of today needs to be on business and the economy. So let me throw out some numbers, which I think are really concerning. After years of a sharp economic upturns and, and really impressively high growth, India today is like really, it's underperforming with GDP at growth at a seven-year low of 5% and historically high unemployment numbers of 6.1%. I just want to say that 5%, it's a small number for a huge developing country. And there's, you know, there's industry slowdowns and sluggish financial markets, unmotivated business leaders, decreasing investment, you know, and all that has really drastically shortened Modi's second term honeymoon. And as he reaches the first 100 days of this new, the second administration, I just just seems like trust is really waning. So, Peter, we've spoken about India a few times in Altamar, and last year we talked about Modi's big promises and how he would lead the world's largest democracy, and at the time was the world's fastest growing economy, and how he could make it into an envious economic success story. Back then, there was still hope that Modi's lofty goals would become reality, and it's not, not so certain now. And we weren't so sure already last year that the combination of rising Hindu nationalism and this mix mixed bag of economic results would complicate it, what we're going to complicate as government. I mean, 900 million people voted in India's recent election. I mean, it's an astounding number. And Modi and his BJP Hindu Nationalist Party won in a landslide. He entered the election as this hugely popular figure and his promises of improving the business climate and introducing comprehensive economic reforms, I, I think, were key to his victory. And so, therefore, it's it's because of that, that since, you know, that, that victory a few months ago, he's really run into headwinds. Of of higher unemployment, rising fiscal deficits, worries about an ongoing liquidity crunch. I mean, I think that's just sort of gives a sense of being dragged down unexpectedly. But leave it to him to counterattack. Modi's a super skilled politician, and now he's introduced a set of measures to offset the growing crisis, to boost growth, to increase foreign investment, and implement the very, very needed structural reforms in India. And along with tax cuts and bank merges, it's a whole package. These uh, downsizing from 10 state-owned banks to four, things have really started to improve for small and medium-sized companies. And there's stimulus for a vibrant digital media industry, which has provided some oxygen for employment, especially young employment and some development. There are new foreign investors in mining, retail, manufacturing, the usual, that have gotten a lot of applause, and so have his credit growth measures. So his kind of mixed package is kind of, it's working. The question is if it's enough to offset India's sluggish economic performance. But, you know, I think, Mooney, you're missing the biggest question of all, and it's not an economic one. It's about Kashmir. India's Muslim-majority state has long enjoyed a semi-autonomous 
status. And in part, that's due to the fact that Pakistan disputes India's claim to Kashmir. And suddenly, for seemingly no good reason other than good Hindu politics, Modi's implemented a plan to end Kashmir's autonomy, split the state into two territories, begin a draconian persecution of Kashmiri politicians, all with military curfews and blackouts of the internet. I mean, it's something that I think in democratic India has never seen before. And obviously, all of this is leading to increased tensions and threats of terrorism. You know, it's clear to me that some in Modi's government really interpreted the prime minister's wide electoral mandate as a space to you know, expand his Hindu national goals and cut off any expression of freedom and dissent in Kashmir. But the thing is, it's not just that. India's political problems are spreading to the international arena. His role in the world stage is filled with landmines, economic uncertainty as it navigates all these multiple tensions aside from Kashmir, stopping China's expansionism, handling difficulties with Pakistan, dealing with the unexpected, to say the least, in its relationship with the U.S., And the U.S., as usual, resorted to tariffs and threats in managing their trade relationship. So the U.S.-India trades in particular, trade talks in particular, have moved pretty slowly. At the working level, they're going, you know, very slowly. But also between Trump and Modi and the political sidelines, they've met informally at recent summits, and are including the U.N. General Assembly. And the tensions are not going away. And we'll see whether the results of these talks will yield any white smoke or any substantial progress on the trade conversation. So I think the question, the bottom line question is, is Modi 2.0 in danger of failing or even just flailing? And that question is beyond Mooney's and my pay grade. So it's time to bring in our guest, Nisha Biswal, the head of the US-India Business Coalition. Previously, she was Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State from 2013 to 2017, where she oversaw the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership. She previously served as Assistant Administrator for Asia at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Biswell also spent 10 years on Capitol Hill, and most recently, she was a Senior Advisor with the Albright-Stonebridge Group. Biswell has served on the board of the U.S. Leadership Council and is currently a member of the U.S. Institute of Peace International Advisory Council and the Institute for Sustainable Communities Board of Directors. Nisha, it's great to have you on Altamar. It's great to be here, Peter. So let's start with the big question. Modi was elected really in a landslide victory. And however, his first term seems to be facing some very quick headwinds, and particularly those headwinds are some are really economic in in character give us a sense of what his first hundred days have been like and what you expect for the future sure i mean look when narendra modi was elected in his first term in 2014 there was just an enormous you know bounce that he had not just within india but in in the global community because of what he represented as an investment opportunity as a you know opening india up for business And I think the first three years of his first term actually produced a lot of important reforms and generated some uh, incredible momentum on on the economy. I think the economy was growing at close to 8%, making India the fastest growing large economy. The last two years of his first term, he started focusing much more on re-election which meant that he was focused on the domestic constituencies, which meant that he was increasingly tilting the policies in favor of a uh, more domestic focus. That 
had an implication, and you saw businesses starting to pull back um, their bullishness. Now he has won his second term with, again, a resounding mandate, and that should open the door in a global environment where there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. It should open the door for much more robust investment going into India, but it hasn't. Why? Because he has not come out of the gate with enough of a focused vision on how he's going to grow the economy, uh, how he's going to create more incentives for uh, investment coming in. And you see a lot of investors, therefore, continuing to hesitate and see where where the Modi 2.0 is going to take India and what his plan is to help resuscitate the economy, which is flagging. And so this trip to the United States for the UN General Assembly and uh, this big speech in Texas that the President of the United States is going to uh, be part of, I mean, that's, that's where he has to deliver the big economic message that helps to restore confidence in India and gives investors a sense of what his plan is for resuscitating the economy. Nisha, but he's already announced a plan, this three-pronged economic package that is meant to revive the economy, boost growth. He's imposed new FDI regulations and also has promised some deeper structural reforms. Are these measures enough? Are they successful enough? Or can they be successful enough to stop this economic slowdown? Or is this just kind of cosmetics? Well, I think it's somewhere in between. Those are absolutely the steps that he has announced so far are important steps. And as he's talked about loosening up FDI caps in certain sectors, including in contract manufacturing, they've certainly liberalized in some aspects of the insurance. uh, and, And those are all important steps. But what we've been urging Prime Minister and his team is to have a more comprehensive approach and focus on things like tariff reduction, look at tax incentives and tax deferment to really bring in much bigger levels of investment. As you see Asian nations and frankly around the world, a competition on how to attract supply chains, which are starting to uh, migrate and diversify, what can India do to really create a much more attractive ecosystem to bring many of those uh, supply chains to India? How do the trade talks between India and the U.S. play into this conversation? India and the U.S. are both protecting their industries. You mentioned tariff reform. Is there any hope for mutually beneficial agreements? And um, what are the main trade irritants just for our listeners for each of the countries? Well, for the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen that there has been a fair degree of friction between the U.S. and India on trade as Certain policies, such as price controls on medical devices, uh, hiking up of tariffs on ICT products, as well as a lack of progress on certain agricultural market access. That has created a fair amount of friction on the U.S. side. And on the other side, uh, the U.S. decision to revoke GSP preferences for India created a real terseness uh, on the Indian side. However, uh, with the Prime Minister's visit to the United States, it has created a huge uh, pressure and momentum to resolve those issues. And I do suspect that uh, the modest trade deal that uh, is being worked on is also going to lead to a better outcome and process for more ambitious trade discussions moving forward. 
Nisha, you mentioned global headwinds, and I want to get into that a little bit more. I mean, there are some, all countries are now facing what seems to be a slowdown. What particular things do you think are problematic for India? Well, the Indian economy is facing a liquidity crunch. They are in very strong need of investment coming in. There's not sufficient domestic investment to really fuel the growth that that economy needs to see and to fuel the infrastructure uh, that India needs to build. And so that's one. Two, there's been distress in the rural economy, and domestic consumption has uh, faltered. And, you know, the Indian economy is not fueled through uh, export-led growth. It's fueled predominantly through domestic consumption. So when you start to see domestic consumption leveling off, um, that creates a challenge. Now, we do think that there will be some bump on domestic consumption in the sense that uh, monsoons, which came in late, did come in in a strong way. Um, and we do think that there's probably going to be a good winter harvest, and that should help farm economy, and that should help spur some domestic consumption. Um, the other thing is they need to create jobs. India has been um, experiencing uh, jobless uh, growth, and so they need to attract um, investment in manufacturing. They need to really uh, stimulate job growth as well. Moving into China, we've talked about some of the struggles that Modi has on his plate right now. How would you describe the relationship between India and China? Is it cautious or is it an adversary relationship? Are they just competitors? What are the kind of the main challenges of this? Well, um, just as with the United States, uh, India has a very deep and important relationship with China. China is the second biggest investor in India, coming second only to the United States. And at the same time, China is a big competitor for India, competitor in the economic sphere and a competitor in the strategic and political sphere. So for India, it's a careful navigation. On the one hand, wanting to have a positive and collaborative relationship with China. They also have their longest land boundary with China. A fair amount of it is uh, unresolved and uh, disputed boundary, right? So it's a careful relationship. And on the one hand, they want to have a positive, collaborative relationship. They want Chinese investment, and they want to see trade with India and China continue to grow. On the other hand, it is a strategic competitor, uh, and India wants to be able to stand as, on par with China on the global stage and to be able to project its interests. India also has, uh, in a bold and ambitious and admirable way, a very fine point on the fact that it supports a rules-based order, one in which there are inclusive opportunities for all countries, that no one country should dominate that, either in terms of the political influence or the economic impact. And so India has been unequivocal in its concerns about Belt and Road. India has been uh, seeking to shore up more diverse uh, economic um, and balanced uh, economic investments, not only within India, but also across the Indian Ocean region. And I can imagine, I mean, just looking at what China has invested through Belt and Road in the countries around India, I can only imagine how that just increases the sense of concern and nervousness about, about China's influence, whether it's in Bangladesh or Pakistan or Sri Lanka or... 
The U.S. and India have very deeply convergent perspectives, is that both countries stand uh, very firmly for free and open Indo-Pacific, and an Indo-Pacific that is multi-directional in terms of the economic uh, and trade relationships that are uh, formulated there. So um, it is in all of our interests to make sure that we see respect for the global norms and standards in terms of economic investment, respect for a rules-based approach to how we're looking at maritime you know, boundary disputes and who gets to fish where and who gets to drill where and who owns what resources, and that there are peaceful and internationally acceptable ways to address any um, differences. India, for example, in the Bay of Bengal, where it had disputed maritime claims with Bangladesh and Myanmar, uh, India allowed itself to be subjected to international arbitration to determine how those maritime claims should be adjudicated. It did not, as the larger power, uh, try to directly bilaterally negotiate and intimidate smaller countries to its advantage. And India rightfully wants to see that other countries adhere to those same approaches. So in that sense, I think, uh, you know, we, the United States, share much in common with the Indians on their perspectives on those things. But just as the U.S. wants to see China continue to be a prosperous but also rule-bound partner in the global system, I think India has a similar interest. One of the headlines that we have seen recently that really captured international attention has been the unexpected get-tough approach to Kashmir. Why do you think Prime Minister Modi did this now, and why has he been so tough? You know, um, Article 370 and the whole issue of the resolution of Kashmir has been something that has been at the heart of the India-Pakistan dynamic for well over 70 years. And while I don't focus directly on um, these issues anymore, I certainly, during my time in government, uh, was very much a part of managing some of those tensions. You know, from the Indian perspective, um, they have long felt that uh, adjudicating their differences between India and Pakistan over Kashmir needed to be done through a bilateral negotiation process. But that negotiations process has really not been able to bear much fruit in these 70-plus years while the issue has been frozen. And... I think uh, that the Indian government's decision to uh, repeal Article 370 and to move towards integrating um, India-administered Kashmir into a more normalized um, status within India was done out of a frustration that in 70 years they have not been able to make any headway towards getting that resolution. Now, I think that the way in which that has unfolded has certainly caused a lot of uh, concern uh, within India and around the world. And I think India needs to demonstrate in the coming weeks and months that it can deliver on what it has said it is trying to deliver, which is a better future for the people of Kashmir, 
more economic investment and opportunity, and a return to a more normal state of being for the residents, for the citizens um, of India who live in that area. That is very much what is hanging in people's minds, and I think uh, those are questions that India is going to need to address very quickly. And, you know, India's relations with Pakistan has always been, what's the word, precarious. I mean, I presume this is going to make it even more precarious, certainly put the relations on greater edge. We have seen over the last five, six, seven years that those uh, tensions have been simmering. Um, I think the very first step that Narendra Modi took when he became prime minister in 2014 was to reach out to Nawaz Sharif to invite him to his inauguration. Throughout that first term, there were repeated attempts by Prime Minister of India and by the Foreign Minister and by the National Security Advisor and others to find ways to try to advance that dialogue. But there were also repeated terrorist attacks on Indian soil that undermined and eroded any trust, any confidence, any uh, real faith that they could move forward on a dialogue process. And this is a government that has a very hawkish and muscular policy, and there's only so much that you can continue to push on that before you see the pushback. And we are starting to see that pushback. Uh, I think it's deeply unfortunate, but I think that uh, this is somewhat of an inevitable outcome. Uh, I think when you push the Indians on it, they would say, Look what happened in the United States after 9-11. How many 9-11s does India need to withstand before we also have an ability to act in our own interest? Nisha, let's take out the crystal ball. So it's 2024, Modi's term is over. What will India look like? Will there be a, a, an opposition figure that has arisen to challenge him and undermine his power? Will he have been a successful prime minister? So a little, little foretelling. It's an interesting moment to look into that crystal ball because I would say that, uh, that that ball right now looks a little bit cloudy. I think that Narendra Modi could go down in history as being uh, the one who brought India onto the global stage and really created the economic miracle. But that's not entirely clear right now. And I think that that's what the prime minister should be focused on, and that's what these coming months will really, uh, really indicate, is whether he's going to be able to achieve that legacy for himself and his country. Is there a new leader that, that uh, you see beyond uh, the term, whether it's uh, in the BJP or in another party in India, that will have both capture the imaginations of Indians the way Prime Minister Modi has? There are so many talented politicians and leaders across India in both political parties. The question for India is, will it nurture those new young leaders, these dynamic leaders that are coming upon uh, the domestic stage and allow them to grow? Or will they be focused on maintaining dynastic politics? Will they be um, focused on maintaining vested interests? I, 
I tend to be bullish on India. I tend to think that every time you think that India is out, India comes back and surprises you and manages to pull a rabbit out of the hat. And I think on Indian politics, I wouldn't dare to say that that they can't pull that rabbit out of the hat. I mean, if you look at people like Sachin Pilot in the Congress party, who are so so creative and so vibrant and so dynamic and are, I think, in some ways, the future of where that party can go. Um, And within the BJP, you know, Anurag Singh Thakur, uh, who uh, is just become the Minister of State and Finance. I mean, these are very dynamic people who I think are going to represent the future of India. Nisha, thank you very much for joining us on Altamar. It was great to have you. It was great to be here. Thank you both. Peter, I don't know about you, but I have finished this podcast a lot more optimistic than I started. It seems like his economic program is on track. It looks like there is some sort of, you know, settling future with the United States. And it it does appear that Modi is probably poised to become quite a miracle in India. I have no idea if that's true, but I love the way you're just looking into that crystal ball. Uh, You know, I think uh, what he has done in Kashmir is probably the most Indians would say it's audacious. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of people that would say that he has really thrown out all of the international rule books and has pushed two nuclear tipped countries, Pakistan and India, even closer to a clash than they were before, and presumably with a relatively new Pakistani prime minister that has stated again and again his interest in some type of an agreement with India. And, and you know, while I'm, uh, I think, as she said to us in such a clear way, that how many times can the Indians take terrorist attacks inside their territory, I think, I think um, this is a region that has that both of these countries were born fighting each other. So this is, it's not as if something new has happened. That's absolutely true. But I think on the political front and even on the economy, he's uh, managed to navigate very interesting countries like China and the U.S. in a way that seems wise and reasonable. And the fact that there's a whole generation of people behind him that could be leaders kind of make him the great leader of his own generation. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things she said was about how he really has managed to balance attracting Chinese investments and stopping the Chinese strategic control of uh, South Asia, which I thought was a a really interesting thing. So yeah, we are optimists then at Altamar. Okay, I'm not agreeing with Mooney, but we'll let you guys decide. Thanks for listening in and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 